Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Capital Spotlight. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley. This morning, I have Jonathan Bross with me, Vice President of Brossland, as well as President of Cameron Street Investments. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, let's jump in to set the stage first. Just introduce yourself and uh, provide a little background and, and what those two companies are focused on currently. Sure thing. So uh, Brossland Investments is our family office. I uh, really started... Uh, about 13 years ago with my father who had a uh, different company grew from the ground up uh, over the course of 25 years. It was in the healthcare uh, space, sold it in 2006 and uh, sort of had an interest in getting into real estate. So he bought a couple buildings with some partners. They were the wrong buildings in the wrong area, wrong uh, business plan. And uh, he was sorting, sort of getting to learn uh, about the real estate industries on his own skin, so to speak. And uh, I came in after doing uh, a few degrees, a few university degrees, uh, was spending a summer working on something else here uh, in the family office in the sports field and was learning about real estate at the time uh, during the summer off. And I said, all right, I kind of, kind of like this. I'll stick with it. And We've sort of been together every, ever since. And uh, what happened at that time, which was around 2009, uh, you know, my father said, go become property manager of these two buildings, learn about the property management aspect, learn about, uh, you know, construction, renovation, how to value add, and uh, get, get to know everything you can about this industry if we're going to make something of, uh, of this family office. So we did. Uh, we decided, decided to take the approach of becoming limited partner investors and learning from the best in the business uh, who have experience, who are transparent, uh, finding sponsor partners in markets uh, where they're experts. And so that was sort of our mandate. So uh, we, in 2010, we saw a couple partners uh, were deciding to go into the U.S. market. We're, we're here in Toronto, Canada. Uh, so we were used to uh, Canadian investments and uh, one partner said, hey, let's go into the U.S., try our hand there. And at the time, the Canadian dollar was at par with the U.S. dollar and uh, some, some luck was on our side that we said, sure, why not? Let's take the uh, currency exchange risk. Let's, let's go down to the U.S. and try our hand there. And since then, we've grown uh, a portfolio. Uh, we've full cycled through about 14 deals right now. We currently have a portfolio of about 25 deals and they run the gamut from value add repositioning deals of class B properties, class A, uh, you know, hold uh, buildings, uh, cash flowing buildings, ground up development of both multifamily condos, senior housing and some office as well. And we have a couple uh, uh, debt deals in there as well. And this was, uh, we sort of carried that business plan up until about a year ago where we had a lot of people, a lot of family friends saying, hey, we like what you're doing. Can we put some money with you guys? And we always kind of shied away from it. And up until a year ago, we said, all right, maybe it's time we sort of try our hand at uh, equity syndication. And uh, so we formed that in January. Um, and we've come close to doing a couple of deals. Haven't done a deal yet with, with Cameron Street. Um, but uh, we have a, a pretty deep roster of investors ready to, to place money in the same deals that the family office does. Um, so those are kind of the two companies. They work hand in hand together, and uh, that's where we're at now. Yeah, that's very exciting. The, the Brossland family office, synergistic with the new you know, equity raising model on the Cameron Street side. Makes a lot right. of sense. So you mentioned yeah. 
investing from Canada and you mentioned the, the currency risk, what are some other nuances that investors in the US or otherwise might not consider uh, from your perspective, but something that is important to you? Well, the, the biggest thing about the US market that's different from Canada is in the US, there's a culture of moving around, right? You have 30 options of large cities that you can move to, of desirable markets you can move to. In Canada, there's really only three or four. Like if you're from a small town in Ontario or Saskatchewan, you're really only moving to Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, maybe Halifax, maybe Calgary or Edmonton. That's it. Those are the markets. Um, in the U.S., there's a risk around every single market where, look, New York and L.A., Chicago, they're all great, huge markets. But now millennials are moving from New York to Austin, Denver, Phoenix, Tampa, because you could do the same thing there, make the same amount of money and have a better lifestyle, a cheaper way of, of living uh, in those markets. Um, so that's kind of a little lost upon the U.S.-Canada diversity. But um, um, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things. Interesting. Okay, so let's dive into your investment criteria from a, you know, you, you can run us through the whole list and, and the whole, uh, you know, the, the model, if you will. Sure. So uh, recently when I started Cameron Street Investments, uh, we, I sort of sat down and, and looked and analyzed how I modeled risk uh, prior to this with our family office. And really, I didn't have a model. Uh, we just sort of sat down with sponsored partners, got to know them face to face, went and did in-person tours of buildings ourselves with the sponsor and asked people in specific markets what those markets are about and, and you know, if we were looking at a submarket in Phoenix, like Mesa. I'd ask the people in the hotel I was staying in, hey, tell me about Mesa. Or, Would you live in Mesa? And what's, what's good about it? What's not good about it? Stuff like that. And we do our due diligence that way. And then at some point, we just take a, take a chance and uh, take a chance on partners who seem transparent and open and honest and would open their books to us, basically. Uh, dealing with a list of, of investors, you kind of have to have a proper model of how to uh, analyze the risk of a deal and why you're choosing one deal over another. So I sat down and, and put together some categories that I found were important that uh, dealing in the past 12 years or so, uh, what made a deal important and what were the risks involved with it. So the, um, the document I have has a uh, right now 11 total categories um, and this document is fluid it's open to change um, and by no means is it the be all and end all of risk analysis documents but uh, it's what we find uh, is important in our deals and what we're looking for so I'll run through it and interrupt me at any time uh, it's there's some pretty big details and it may take a little bit of time to go through so just interrupt at any time uh, so the first category that we found most important uh, in terms of risk is our partnership. As a LP investor, you really have to know who the sponsor partner is um, and what their background is. They're running the deal. They're in charge of finding the property management. They're in charge of going through the business plan and making it succeed. So you have to know who those partners, is, partners are and make sure they're good. So under the uh, partnership risk category, I have uh, some subcategories, which is, are they a new partner with us or are they established? Have we done deals with them before? How much experience have they have? Do they have in years? Um, you know, there's 
we value more points for a well-established group, obviously. And with a new group, you have to look at the nuances of um, how, how, what they've been doing in the past, let's say, three, four, five years that, that they've been operating. So we recently evaluated a condo development deal here in, in Toronto. And it was a great group, great group of guys. The deal was fantastic. But they had only been in operation for four years. And they haven't cycled through any development deal yet. So you don't know whether their budget to actuals on constructions, how, how accurate they are. You don't know what, how good they are at delivering a business plan, how good they are at delivering returns to investors when they haven't gone through a full cycle. So we look at that and, and put a value on that. Um, what is a partnership group's uh, current portfolio, the number of deals, the type of deals in their portfolio? Like I said, have they run a full cycle and what were the return averages they've, they've given you? And you sort of have to, when you're an investor, you have to um, look a little closer at those numbers because as you know, people from uh, 2009 to 2014 are returning huge IRRs. Well, you're in a post-recession market and you're buying at the low lows and selling at, at pretty, high, uh, pretty high returns anyways. It's just, you know, the market risk factors there were were so little that you're getting these huge returns. Well, let me see what you're doing now when you buy in 2013 and sell in 2018. And what are your returns then? So you have to dig a little deeper into those numbers. And then uh, what's any background or education of the sponsored group, anything that can lend its hand to whether um, their, uh, their uh, sponsorship company, their investment company uh, will have success. And what is the sponsor's uh, equity that they're putting in, how much money they're putting in, what are the fees they're taking, and what are the waterfall splits on the back end. There's a lot of greedy groups out there and a lot of groups that are willing to share in the profits with their LP investors. And we find that everyone kind of has to be in the same boat, rowing in the same direction uh, when you're doing these real estate deals. Sponsor groups can't really be out for themselves just wanting to go collect fees. Um, it, it won't work that way. So that's how we evaluate the uh, partnership risk category. Let me stop you that right there and, and ask in terms of the sponsor, how much equity they're bringing to the table. Do you differentiate equity that's actually coming out of their pocket and maybe from family and friends, or do you not really care where it's coming from, even if it's coming from their investors, as long as you're seeing that they're bringing equity to the table? Yeah, uh, generally, we like to see them bringing their own dollars to the table. Now, it's not lost in us that some GP sponsor groups will raise their portion of the equity. And we've actually participated in uh, a couple of those deals as the GP equity for the sponsor. Um, it really, that factor would really have to depend on what the situation is. You know, is it the sponsor is over levered, so he needs to raise more capital, or is it a young group and he's got a couple bucks, but he's starting out and may need to raise a little more capital in order for this to succeed that we sort of understand. So it really just depends on the, on the deal and the sponsor itself. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, so the next, the next category um, is the population growth in the market and the specific market. And really we look at, we look through things like the census and CoStar, uh, do our research with uh, McKinsey Institute, 
And uh, one resource that if you're a, a first time investor looking to evaluate markets, if you look on Wallet Hub, it's a great resource uh, for ranking cities, getting information about certain markets out there. We like it a lot. Um, and we, we go through where, do the, where does the city rank in the top 100? What's the year over year growth? What's the submarket growth? And, and what in the last 10 years is the growth? And it sort of gives you that micro picture of what's going on in the last year and what's been going on steadily over a decade. And we sort of like that steady climb um, in the population growth. It gives you a good picture of what's going on in the city uh, versus something where there's an immediate spike in the last year or two. And then you have to do your research as to what's going on to cause that spike. And sometimes that answer is okay. And sometimes it's not. You just have to pick that apart a little bit. So what's a good percent annualized population growth? So anything in a year over year, anything over 10% is phenomenal, right? Like that is great population growth. Eight to 10, amazing. Five to seven is great. And then anything below a three is, it's fine, but it's not ideal. Like we'll give it lower scores. And the one thing about this risk model is you can get a low score year over year growth in population, but it may not have a significant factor in the overall risk of a deal. Um, so that's sort of how I like to, to describe it to investors is just like, you may get a couple of categories where it doesn't do so well, but that's not really gonna have a huge effect on the overall risk score uh, that we give it. So then the third category is leverage on the deal. Uh, what's the partner presenting as leverage? Um, we tend to prefer deals where you're at 65 to 75% uh, total leverage, if you're bumping up into the 80s with a preferred equity uh, portion, that's okay, but we'll have to um, dig into that number further. Uh, we look at the interest on the deal, if there's an interest only period, uh, and what the term is of the, of the uh, debt. Um, and with the interest only period, we dig a little deeper into that category and look at the business plan if it's a value add deal, you know, how many years of interest only are you, are you getting? And then where does it take you into your value add thesis? And if you find that the principal is gonna kick in while you're mid value add and your CapEx is in there and you, know, you may not be cash flowing too good after that, uh, after that interest only period comes up. So you really have to dig into that number as well. Yeah, that's something that we focus on as well, especially if it's a, like you said, a deal that is, let's say we're financing with 10 year uh, debt and let's say the first three years or two years is interest only. And we, we want to see that when we roll off the IO period and go and begin amortizing, that the cash flow is still attractive to investors. So we want to see whenever that IO period burns off that we're still able to, depending on the deal profile, cash flowing at anywhere from seven to even up to 9% on an amortized basis. Nine is a bit aggressive, but that's, that's something that's, our guiding metric as far as amortized cash flow. Do you have something similar? Uh, it's very similar to that. I'd say even a 6% is, is okay by us. Uh, it gives you enough of a buffer uh, that if something happens to go wrong uh, at that point, uh, you still have enough of a cash buffer to, to carry you through. So I, I agree with you completely on that. Cool. Um, so then our, our next category is the geography and, uh, and market risk. And this is our most nuanced category. I have about 15 subcategories in there and 
you could you could uh, analyze a market a hundred different ways. Uh, we have a few categories in here that we find are important, but uh, if you're an investor, uh, there may be something else that you find in a, in a city or a market that's important to you. Uh, a couple of the subcategories where it ranks for families, for lifestyle, does it attract millennials? Uh, what are the amenities in the city or in the area? Is it a uh, travel hub or easy to get to? And what is the transportation like within the city? So can people get around easily to their jobs back home, back to the whatever the uh, wherever the building is? Um, is it susceptible to weather events? So hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, earthquakes. We have uh, investments in a few cities like uh, uh, Houston, Tampa, Charlotte, Charleston, all susceptible to hurricanes. And we've had one building in Houston that got hit with Hurricane Harvey uh, a few years back and our business plan got turned on its head and we had to, uh, I mean, the whole city got turned on its head, but uh, our, our building, uh, we had water up to the second floor um, and we had to move tenants out, redo the whole uh, first few floors of the building and deal with insurance. And sometimes insurance isn't so the insurance companies aren't so uh, cooperating with you. So uh, that takes time and then you're upside down cash flow wise and you got to deal with that. So we give that a, a, a score in our, in our risk uh, analysis uh, uh, just because from experience that we've, we've dealt with it. Um, yeah, what's in terms the of, in ter real quick, in terms of markets, right? Some people mm -hmm. look at markets and it sounds like this is what you do. You look at it qualitatively and you assess a, a risk metric or, you know, kind of a, we like it this much, but maybe we don't like it as much. Some, but other people just have yes or no as far yep. as how markets go, right? They'll just say, Houston, that's a no for us no matter what. I don't care if the deal is a seven cap, you know, it doesn't matter. I just no Houston or, or, you know, no anywhere where there's flood risk, that's a no. Um, so it's interesting to see that. Uh, and I like your nuanced approach because it's not a, it's not a no. If there are other factors make up for it, if the risk return model is there, you're willing to, to, to make the bet. Yeah, exactly. Like you could see, I mean, all these categories under the market geography overall category is so nuanced. It's such a uh, minor figure on the overall uh, risk metric analysis that we have. So it's a factor. Is it a huge factor? Not necessarily. Um, if, if the building gets a low score on our overall risk analysis, well, okay, why did they get a low score? Can we deal with the risk? Maybe we still go into a deal if it gets a low risk score on our analysis. Maybe we don't. So, um, yeah, some people have uh, easy yes, no. I like the market. I like the city for whatever reason. And, and that's totally fine. Um, this is just how we've sort of modeled it as a means to explain to investors why we're picking this deal because we'll have someone that say hey you know you turned down this other great deal in in uh, denver that looked the same as this deal in phoenix well why did you do that so this is sort of the explanation why um so yeah so so those are sort of the uh some of the market uh risk categories we then i then imp implemented a covid uh, category of risk. And in that category, what I'm basically looking for is, are the cities more susceptible to a shutdown? Um, a place like Las Vegas or Orlando, where a lot of it, 
uh, the economy is based around retail hospitality, more susceptible to a shutdown. Well, what does that risk look like in the next year or two if you're doing a deal there? Uh, something like um, the changes uh, in the rate of, of employment or unemployment since COVID had started. There's some uh, sites that you can find uh, what that rate is and which cities are more susceptible to a larger uh, unemployment and which cities uh, will bounce back easier when uh, economies open up. And they may be the same cities in, in the two equations. So it's kind of interesting to look at, but uh, we, we put a value on that. Uh, we, we have another category of job growth uh, in the city, and it's the same sort of thing where it's, what's the unemployment rate in a city? What's the recent job growth? What's future job growth? And what are the main employments uh, in a city? And we've had success where uh, we're near healthcare hospitals, uh, growing tech industries, government-centric industries, um, you know, retail hospitality we've liked up until COVID, obviously, um, and we still will like after COVID, but right now we're putting a little more uh, risk on that uh, industry in particular. But uh, what are the main employments around that investment? Um, because most of your tenants are going to be working in those industries. So. Uh, so speaking of job growth and growth more generally, I think this is a really interesting topic as it relates to underwriting. And we're talking about right now, qualitatively assessing a deal. And what I find really interesting is how to take qualitative assumptions and then turn them into quantitative assumptions into your actual underwriting model and, and then generate a return based on, you know, going from qualitative to quantitative to return, right? And something, and growth is really important to underwriting, especially today because prices are, are high, so cap rates are low. And so the way that you actually achieve your return oftentimes is growing into that cap rate and, and making it, into a, you know, a reasonable return on cost. And that as either through a value add or through buying into an area that you have high conviction in that you think rent growth is going to occur or cap rates are gonna stay low. So how do you translate some of these things that we've discussed such as, oh, we think jobs are growing like crazy. How do you translate that into your actual model? Well, what I do is I, I place a value on each of these categories, right? So each of the subcategories like unemployment rate, recent job growth, future job growth, it's all based out of 100, right? So I've scaled it to what I find are most important to least important, where unemployment rate I find is most important. Future job growth, when you're talking about a value add play, I think is next. Recent job growth and then employment by industry. And those are all value based on a scale out of 100. We then take a, uh, a score for the overall category of the job growth category, which is on the overall scale about an eight out of, out of 100. And each subcategory gets a score, gets a quantitative score. And then the total of that is added up into a score out of the eight. Um, and what I find is for recent job growth, um, if you find a, a market where there's 20 to 25% employment growth, that's fantastic in, the, in, in recent growth. Some are going to be much higher uh, when you're looking at uh, five to 10 year uh, employment growth. Some are going to be higher when you're looking at a year over year growth. Uh, but we, we put a value, an internal value based on that number of anything in the 20 to 25% is, is high or plus is high. And then it scales down from there. Um, when you're talking about future job growth, um, it's sort of the same thing. Like, 
what industries are they are they looking at that are growing employment and how do are, how are your sources anticipating um, you know what the employment rate and unemployment rate will be in that future and we'll give it a scaled a scaled down version of that that's a little nuanced um, but uh, we'll place a value on on each of the numbers based on a percentage uh, going forward. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Um, so then next category is uh, the what what the sponsors are asking for in terms of equity, uh, equity from their limited partners, equity that they're putting in themselves versus what their return is that they're projecting. And I just basically call this the bang for your buck category. And are you getting good returns for your money? As an investor, if I have a million bucks, why should I put it in this deal versus another deal? And uh, am I getting uh, a risk adjusted return? Is this money uh, going to be you know, making the most money for us as a family office? Is it going to be making the most money for, an investor, for our investors? If it's not, why? And if uh, the risk is lowered for a slightly lower return, that's okay by us too. If it's making the most amount we can, if, it, if we're projecting a 20 plus IRR over a five-year period, what's the risk factors and, uh, you know, what are they asking for, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's that category. Then the next is what is uh, the current market rent versus rent growth um, that's projected in any, any deal. Um, and, you know, basically your sponsor will show you uh, their business plan, their underwriting as to what their, what the current market rent is, what the competitors are doing and uh, what they value uh, as the growth rent and what are the rent bumps if they're putting in a value add program, what are those monthly rent bumps that they're projecting and do those numbers all make sense? You know, if, uh, if a sponsor, if the market rent is a thousand bucks a month and you're at 900 and they're projecting after your value add, it's gonna be at 1300, does that make sense at all? Or, uh, you know, is it gonna be 1120 or 1100 right where market is today? So what does that business plan look like? It doesn't make sense. And how, how focused are you on rent growth beyond that, that value add rent? So let's say they push their rents based on the business plan to 1300. You know, how concerned are you with a sponsor projecting, you know, 3% rent growth behind that or 4% rent growth if they think they're in a really strong market? How much time do you focus on that piece? I think um, we focus a bit of time on that. Obviously, um, when you're getting further and further into the future, it's harder to predict. You know, you could predict your business plan for, let's say, a year or two and what the current rent growth projection, projections are year over year for a certain market. As you get into years three, four, five and beyond, you could say it's 3% rent growth. And I think that's a pretty conservative number, although today, maybe not, maybe not in the COVID times right now, but generally 3% is a conservative number. If I've seen deals where people are projecting five, 6% uh, rent growth. And I think that's a little unrealistic. Um, and that speaks to our uh, partnership uh, risk categories where you want partners who are, you know, under promising and over delivering, right? Like you don't want a guy to say, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll get you six, 7% year over year rent growth. And then he gives you one. Uh, that doesn't bode well for a partnership from our, from our standpoint. So that's kind of how we look at it. Um, next category is our vacancy and bad debt. 
Um, generally, we like to uh, see underwriting at around a 6%, 7% vacancy. Um, we think that's pretty conservative. Uh, bad debt, another point or two with loss to lease and bad debt factored in there. Again, during COVID times, you're seeing those numbers tick up a little bit higher, um, but generally 6% uh, for vacancy is, is where we like to see it at. And then the last two categories are um, employment in the vicinity of the building and the retail and, and amenities around the building. And we found that, you know, when you find a, a rental building that's near jobs, near coffee shops, near grocery stores, um, you tend to find better quality tenants who want to be in the area, want to live in the area, and want to be near those amenities. And so even though those are the lowest two categories on our uh, analysis document, um, we still find them that they're somewhat meaningful factor to, to all this. And that's it. That's it. Well, I really appreciated you running through that list. I thought that was a, a very interesting thing to do on this, uh, on the show to take a deeper dive, right? A lot of people talk about, well, we analyze the market, right? And that's, and we analyze the deal. Okay. Well, what does that even mean? And obviously it means a million things for a million different people. So it's interesting to get an insight into, your process and um you know i think that's valuable for people to learn from as well as potentially if they're looking to to work with you or someone like you to mm -hmm. be able to you know better uh you know seek out those types of deals that might be a better fit yeah and look this is we like, like i said this isn't how we started we start like any other investor just sort of organically looking at deals and hoping for the best kind of thing and it takes time and, and experience to learn what's important and what's not important in a deal and what you yourself find important from an investment standpoint. So hopefully um, this can help some investors uh, model their own uh, risk analysis if they want. Um, and if people are looking to invest with us, they know that we're doing uh, our homework on these deals, basically. Yeah, well, it's very clear that you guys are doing your homework. How in your perfect world, what would a sponsor reaches out to you, right? Uh, shoots you an email, puts a deal on your desk. What, what are all the due diligence items that they should have at the ready for you to make your process easier? Whether that be market reports, whether that be their assumptions, their underwriting, um, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's, you got to have your underwriting, uh, market reports, You've got to be ready with, uh, and this may not happen right away, but you've got to be ready with legal documents, how you, um, how you structure your partnerships, whether it's uh, a JV structure or a GPLP structure, what do those legal documents look like? Um, and, uh, you know, after that, you know, it's, it's meeting with the partnerships, either face-to-face -face or, or on Zoom calls or, or what have you. And then we could sort of do our own internal uh, analysis. And then it's like I've been doing in the past is I'll go and meet that sponsor down at where the building is. I'll fly down there and we'll go through the building ourselves with you and make sure everything you're telling us is for real. <laughs> and all the uh, that business plan you put in place, that's for real. And the units you say need value add, those are there and, you know, go through it that way. So it's, it's, um, uh, full circle uh, um, uh, due diligence. Very good. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, why don't you let people know where they can go to learn more about you guys as well as get in touch? Sure. Uh, you can go to brosslandinvestmentsinc.com. Uh, 
for uh, to see what our family office has been doing. A bunch of our deals are up there. You go to CameronStreetInvestments.com um, to learn about Cameron Street. And uh, you want to get in touch with, with me, uh, my email is jbross at brossland.com. And feel free to reach out, uh, ask, me, ask me any questions. Uh, you want to talk about anything? I'm an open book, so uh, I'm around. Awesome. Again, thanks for your time and have a good one. Thanks, Rob.